Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Global, where we tell you what you need to know about news and politics from around the world. It's a sprawling and complex world out there, so every Friday we're here to make it feel a little easier to comprehend. On this edition, a hard arraignment's going to fall for Trump in Georgia, fatal political turmoil in South America, and deadly fires devastate the island community of Maui. I'm Chris Jones, and I'm joined by Laura Makin Isherwood, the former London Bureau Chief of Feature Story News and my old boss. She now works with the likes of LBC, ITV, and best of all, us here at Podmasters. How are you, Laura? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. And you're right. It's lovely being here with Podmasters. Now, we couldn't not talk about Donald J. Trump and the latest charges brought about in Georgia. I feel like I've lost count of the number of times I've read the headline, Trump indicted, but I think we're at four now. Tell me if I'm wrong. It's a situation that's ever moving. And if you're listening and not managed to keep up with it, I get it. It's hard to fully grasp, but we'll do our absolute best to bring you up to speed. Laura, this is a mess, isn't it? What's the latest from Georgia and what's exactly in this indictment? Okay. Well, there's a number of charges that have been laid out against Donald Trump in Georgia, and they mostly revolve around allegations of him engaging to conspire to steal votes that had been cast for Joe Biden in the 2020 elections. Now, in an attempt to overthrow a narrow loss for the Republicans there, he's accused of trying to steal those votes. Now, there's a total of 13 charges that have been set out. They're all wrapped up in one document. That's known as the indictment, the formal charge that will be brought against him. Now, he'll be asked to go to court now and enter a plea. But you're right, it's the fourth time now that Trump has faced an indictment. And he's been in court already three times relating to those previous indictments. First in March, when he was accused of covering up a payment made to the adult film star Stormy Daniels. Remember that? Allegedly paying to cover up an affair that he had with her. He's denied that. Then again in Florida, he appeared there after being charged with keeping classified files at his Mar-a-Lago estate and refusing to return them. He's denied that too. And the third time was in Washington, D.C. just a couple of weeks ago. And that was over another claim that he tried to interfere with election results there. Now, he said at the time that he'd won falsely. And it's those lies that prosecutors say fueled the attack on the Capitol, those riots that we saw. And so he's denied that too, everything associated with it. But now we're seeing this latest hit in Georgia. We think we're going to see Trump in court uh, entering a plea by August the 25th. But who knows? He could be trying to delay this. God, it just goes on and on and on and on, doesn't it? It feels like we're going to be talking about Trump being indicted um, forever. But then just just coming back to, to Georgia and the latest, is a key point here that he might not have the get out of jail free card of pardoning himself if, and it is a big if, he became president. 
Yeah, you're right. And Channel 4 News actually had an interview with a prosecutor that had been involved in the Watergate scandal. So the legal uh, sort of associations with that. And she'd said that if he were to go to prison, it would be impossible for him to pardon himself, saying that he can't do that. He can't overturn that conviction in Georgia because of Georgian statutes, Georgian rules. And so if he is found guilty of those indictments, if he has served some prison time, then that will have to stick. And in Georgia, he'll have to serve out that term and continue to pay back any fines that he is indeed uh, served with there. But the interesting point is there's nothing that bars a felon, if convicted, from running for presidency from jail. And so therefore, it would still be possible for him to win. And the pressure now really will be on the Democrats to stop that from happening if he does decide to go ahead with it, if indeed he is found guilty, if indeed he does go to jail. Now, there's more than just Trump on, on the bill here, isn't there? I saw Rudy Giuliani's name uh, on this as well. Who else are the characters that are involved in all of this? Yeah, you're right. So there's Trump's former lawyers, current lawyers, including Rudy Giuliani, as you've said. So there's a number of those lawyers involved. There's the former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. There's the Department of Justice uh, officer, Jeffrey Clark, and some people as well who have been referred to as fake electors. So they include uh, former Georgia Republican Party chair, David Schaefer. They're alleged, this group of people, to have signed certificates saying that Trump won Georgia when he hadn't. And the list does go on and on. As I said, there's a total of around 19 people that have been included in this. And it's likely that prosecutors in Georgia will want to try these people all together, try to link them and associate them uh, as part of a wider sort of charge against them. It's called the Georgia's Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organisation Act. So charges brought against them under that. Now, there could be some issues with this because some of the defendants might claim that they won't get a fair trial if they are tried alongside all those other people. And so there is every chance that people could be trying to delay these trials then, trying to push them back and get individual uh, cases for themselves. But let's see what happens, because we know that prosecutors in Georgia really want this act to be pushed forward and for all these people listed in this indictment to be tried together. Let's talk about that trial a bit now, and specifically the judges, because there's been a bit going on um, there. Now, a Texan woman has just been charged with uh, threatening to kill the federal judge who is overseeing the charges. The woman also allegedly racially abused Judge Tanya Chutkan, who is black. Um, Are prosecutors being mindful of the fact that almost any move they make against Trump could trigger violence? It must be a really delicate line to tread because, of course, if these threats have been put against these judges, then they're going to be worried for their own safety. But ultimately, they are there in position to try to follow the law, try to make sure that other people follow the law and that the justice system works. So they will be continuing, I imagine, in their work, trying to push this forward, make sure that everything is done according to the law, to the letter. And uh, the only real option that they have is to try to make sure that security procedures are in place, try to keep uh, in touch with intelligence services, I imagine, who could be looking for any uh, expectations that violence could be on the horizon and using that sort of linked up governmental system to try to protect themselves. But ultimately, it's their responsibility to follow the law. So I imagine they're going to be pushing forward. And Trump has been warned not to make inflammatory statements by the judge. But believe it or not, he's not, not listened. And he's, he's done exactly that. All you have to do is go to Truth Social to see the extent of some of the things that he's been saying. Um, but some commentators have even said that anyone else would be in jail for contempt by now. 
is this a case of Trump just testing the waters to kind of see what he can and can't get away with? Well, I mean, he just keeps pushing it, doesn't he? It's like he really does not care, uh, from my perspective anyway, what the law means, what matters, what could actually uh, harm him in a trial, as you say, that kind of contempt issue, things that could be used against him. And it's like he thinks he's above the law. Well, we know that from the various indictments that have been brought against him. We can see uh, the evidence that has been brought forward, basically setting out that he's tried to overturn an election, tried to push things in his favour all the time. So despite those warnings from the judge, clearly he thinks that he is above it and it's not going to come back to bite him. But let's see, hey. Namaskaram. My name is Nayad. I'm a tour leader with Explore. Come, follow me for a breakfast. You will never forget. Namaste. <laughs> because you are going to make an incredible masala dosa under the watchful eye of my mom. Kya baat hai, ma? Each home adds their special touches. Mm. But not everyone gets to join in a traditional family meal. You will if you explore. For global adventures, search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel, explore. How's it? My name is Lassetti. I'm a tour leader with Explore. Come on, let me show you something. Oh, careful. Can you see it? Oh, trust me. It can see you. There, between the trees. It's not every day you get to see a rhino on a walk. I guess not everyone is taken to the right places. But you will be, if you explore. For global adventures, search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel. Explore. Let's stay in the US with the wildfires on the island of Maui that have burned for days. In fact, they're still not completely under control as we record on Thursday afternoon. Pretty much everything the fire has touched has been destroyed, and it's way more than just things that have perished. The death toll exceeds 100 people. It's a figure that's expected to keep rising, and it's already the deadliest disaster of its kind in the US for more than a century. Dylan Enchetta is a journalist for Hawaii News Now, and he's been covering this since the first spark. I sat down with him to discuss the situation, and I started by asking him how the people at the heart of this have been impacted, including himself. Yeah, well, uh, to be clear, I'm not from the island of Maui. However, um, we in Hawaii are one big ohana where some part of us hurt, we all hurt. We have family, friends throughout the entire state, and so something like this truly hits really close to the home for so many people. And um, when all of this started happening uh, in week one, it was hard. My emotions overcame me on air. Um, There was a clip of me just breaking down when at the time the death toll was 67. I had to report that on air and I could not contain the emotions and it was just so heartbreaking to see and it continually is heartbreaking to see we know this is just scratching the surface what has the impact on on the community been there i know you you say there that it's only just scratched the surface but from what i've been able to see online from where i am in the uk it it seems like this has hit everyone pretty hard in, in places like maui it has definitely um again we all band together in times of tragedy like this and so into all of Hawaii basically feels like we're in a mourning period. There are events that are being postponed and canceled uh, out of respect for the victims, rightfully so. And 
it, it in a way sort of feels like we're at the start of COVID again because we don't know how long this is going to last. We know uh, the death toll is far higher uh, and the search and rescue operations will be ongoing. This is really a marathon and not a sprint because this is going to take forever to recover from this. And the people of Hawaii are hurting right now. And that's exactly the feeling that we've had over this last week. And in fact, something interesting, I think we're kind of at that point, it's been a week and a day where now some of that pain and hurt is turning to frustration and anger. So people are are processing emotions in very different ways. Um, and I know you've just come from a conference um, with Governor uh, Josh Green, and I, I do want to come to that a, a little bit later on. But just for, for more context for people in the UK who perhaps haven't seen the entirety of what's happened here, could you just describe exactly what has taken place? Most definitely. The entire town of Lahaina is completely destroyed of great wall of fire has moved through this historic town and uh, we've been trying to get a a rough size estimate but it's anywhere between two and three miles worth of just utter devastation all from the flames all from this fire that spread in so many different directions Um, historic sites have been burned to complete rubble and ash and also i want to touch on the cultural importance of this Lahaina used to be the capital of the Kingdom of Hawaii, and the Lahaina Courthouse alone had historic artifacts, lei nihopola, Hawaiian flags, dating back to our ancient Hawaiian uh, culture. Those have been lost to the flames forever, and it's such a blow to the Hawaiian people and our history. And on top of that, Lahaina is a hotspot for tourists. And so our economic driving force for West Maui has been completely wiped off the mat. And it's just row after row. We've been looking at aerial images of blocks of houses, just now white ash completely. Essentially, Lahaina Town is just gone. Yeah, those images that you mentioned are harrowing. There's no real other way to put it and, and devastating for uh, the people that live there and have lived there for, for a very long time. And as you say, those historic memories have been lost forever. What are people telling you? I imagine you spoke to some people, um, I hate this term, but on the ground. What are they telling you about all of this? Yeah, uh, well, our team definitely has been talking to a lot of people. And like I mentioned, it goes between the sadness, heartache, and now frustration. People are getting frustrated at the emergency aid is not coming as fast as they would hope. Communities still remain cut off. At last check, about 2,000 people in West Maui still remain without power. Uh, Communication lines, phone lines are limited. Authorities are working their fastest to get those back up and running. But again, it takes time like this. Now, the frustration also comes because we know of some tangled history in terms of West Maui and their water rights. We are now learning about how there was low water pressure for firefighters battling these flames. And of course, the question is, why is that? Uh, So we are still working to figure all of that out ourselves. But nonetheless, on top of all of the sadness and frustration, there's also been glimmers of hope because, again, we know that Hawaii comes together and there have been a beautiful silver lining in seeing 
even people who have lost everything are still volunteering. They're still helping others in their community, which is the beautiful thing. We are hearing stories of harrowing escapes. People jumped into Lahaina waters and sat there for seven, eight hours in the darkness with fire and smoke all around them until the Coast Guard got to them. It really is just something we've never seen before in our lives. As you mentioned, that press conference with Governor Josh Green is, is, is going on as we talk. What came from that and, and how has he handled this situation? Well, he started it by letting us know the death toll is now at 110. So that was the latest update there. He also reassured the public that they are working towards a moratorium on land property sales in the disaster zone. Uh, That has been another concern that has emerged from local people is these outside investors, these predatory realtors will swoop in. And allegedly, there have already been reports of people reaching out saying, hey, let me take this property off your hands and I'll take care of everything else. But the bigger issue with that is people are worried this is just a ploy to buy off land and further price people out of their own homes, their own land. So that has been another concern. Governor Green said he's worked with his attorney general to put a moratorium on sales of homes and property in the disaster area. And he also uh, mentioned how if anyone does try to rebuild, their building permits will not be approved for quite some time. So those are some other things. Uh, Maui police chief said 38% of Lahaina has been searched. And that's another staggering statistic there. We are at 38% having been searched for Lahaina. And we are yet 110 confirmed fatalities. The morgue has been overrun. Containers for morgue support have been brought in for bodies and human remains. Also, morgue specialists from the mainland have also been flown in. So that just speaks to how wide scale this is. Um, Again, 38% search, and we're already at 110 confirmed deaths. Imagine when the confirmed search area is 100%. Yeah, this reminds me a lot of, um, I covered Storm Ian in Florida not too long ago. And as you've described there, the the search for the people that were missing just seemed to go on and on and on. And there was growing frustration as to why the authorities weren't able to find these people quicker or just release the numbers. Um, but I do want to finish on on a bit of a, um, a lighter, happier note almost if we can, because you did mention that there were glimmers of hope uh, around the area. Um, the fires seem to be largely in comparison to what they were under control now how are the community coming together to to rebuild and 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 how long do you think that's going to take yeah well honestly rebuilding is we are nowhere near that step the community knows it uh the fires in fact are still burning firefighters do have the upper hand on them so to speak i think la lahaina fire was about 85 percent contained one in Kula was about 65-70% contained, and there is some rain in the forecast that may help dampen those fires as well. But right now, the immediate focus, what's on everyone's mind, is the recovery of all of our loved ones. There are still so many unaccounted for, and that is really what's on the forefront of everyone's mind, that and helping the people who have lost everything. Um, in, in terms of rebuilding Lahaina, No one is really focused on that right now. They do know that down the road, years from now, um, 
it'll take billions of dollars to clear out that area and start fresh, start building new. Governor Josh Green said down the road when the time is right, he hopes to have a memorial for those victims. But again, the immediate focus is really just saving those or rescuing those human remains under the rubble and also helping our families who are who have lost everything. And the community of Hawaii and around the world has continued to show their support via donations online and in person. So uh, the people definitely thank everyone who has been praying for Lahaina and supporting Lahaina as well. Let's just hope that many of those that are missing can still be found and you know returned to their to their loved ones. Um, Dylan Mahalo, thanks so much for joining me, and, and best of luck with the rest of your reporting. Thank you so much for continuing to bring attention to what's going on in Maui. Buonasera. My name is Marcello. I am a tour leader with Explore. Ciao. Come, follow me. Behind this 200-year-old gate is the best view of one of Rome's finest fountains. Ah, oh, bellissima. Look at the Renaissance detail, the sunlight in the bronze. Not everyone knows about Turtle Fountain, but you will if you explore. Search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel. Explore. Good news, your favorite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts next on Bunker Global Ecuador is experiencing its bloodiest era those were the words of Luisa Gonzalez who is the front runner in this Sunday's special presidential election in Ecuador her words come in the wake of the assassination of Pedro Briones the third politician in the nation within a month to lose their life. And it's not even as though these killings are being hidden. The killing of Fernando Villavicencio, for example, has been shared widely online and happened as he entered his vehicle to leave a public event. Laura, can you give us a sense of of who these politicians were, firstly, why they were killed? Do we even know the answer to that last question? Well, it seems like they're all from different groups, different parties, but they all appear to have been outspoken against crime, against organised gangs, and it seems against what's become Ecuador's drug problem. Now, Fernando Villavicencio was the Construya Party's presidential candidate lined up for this vote that is taking place on Sunday. There was also Pedro Briones. He was a leader in a rural area of Ecuador for the Revolution Cuidadana Party. Excuse my Spanish if I've said that wrong. And the third person, Augustin Intriago, was the mayor of the city of Manta, and he's been recently re-elected. Now, it's speculated, as I said, that these killings may have been because of their stances on anti-corruption, anti-drug trafficking, uh, because Ecuador has, while historically been a fairly peaceful country, over the last few years, there has been an increase in crime, in violence, and indeed in the presence of cartels and criminals 
following an overspill, essentially, of problems from places like Colombia and drug issues. So there's been a lot of uh, push, I suppose, from these election candidates to try to speak to the people who have been worried about this to stand up against crime. And some of these people who have been killed were also journalists who had actually investigated um, these issues themselves. So while authorities aren't saying explicitly why they think this has happened, the speculation is because they are trying to stand up against these, these criminal gangs. Yeah, you mentioned anti-corruption there. What else are the main issues going on here in the lead up to, to some of these elections? Oil, I gather, is, is a pretty big issue in Ecuador, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And this is all around a special referendum that's taking place on Sunday as well. So uh, there's the question that's being posed to the public, that is, should oil fields be closed and should copper and gold mining be restricted? Now, this industry, the mining industry, the uh, production of oil, which sits at around 466,000 barrels of oil a day in Ecuador, is pretty fundamental to the success of the nation's economy. And some predicting that if it were to be shut down, then millions of pounds would be lost from the government budget. But there is this argument, of course, about how uh, this area where oil in particular is taken from should be protected. It's an area of rainforest. And as we know, we've seen these wildfires in Maui, this speculation uh, from scientists that actually, not even speculation anymore, they're looking at this data and saying that it's all to do with climate change and the weather systems that we're seeing change is a result of impacts on climate systems. And so this now fight between economics and wealth and then the environment continues around the globe. And so this is a big issue there. People that rely on this industry to make their living, fund their income versus those who really do see the need uh, for the environment to be protected. So that is a big one. And then ultimately, a lot of it is about cost of living, people's uh, fundamental experiences as they live their lives. And as I said, this threat from crime, uh, from corruption and from drug cartels that seem to be running rampant. Uh, and there's a bit of a fight now, it seems, between those gangs, between the state and governance, and then, of course, the public as well, those who just want to continue living their lives innocently. Now, you mentioned climate change um, in there, and, and I want to change tax slightly, but stay in South America. I want to go to Argentina now, um, because there's someone running for election there who is a bit odd, let's put it that way. And he's also a massive climate denier. This is something that uh, Marie LeCant mentioned in Oh God, What Now? in our last episode. Um, and this man is, is he's a Donald Trump-inspired politician. His name's Javier Milai. And I read a description that is 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 pretty wild. I'll, I'll put that loosely. It basically described him as a hard rocker with sideburns who wears leather jackets. Who is this guy? Well, good question. And I think your description there was pretty accurate. If you want to just Google this guy, then you, you will see some significant sideburns there and probably a leather jacket and a really fierce stare, I thought, when I looked at him. He gives me kind of Engelbert Humperdinck kind of vibes. Yes, bang on. It's really you know, odd. That, yeah, yeah, you're right. So he's a 52-year-old economist who, as you said, likes his uh, fashion, uh, sings rock songs, and he has said outwardly that he admires Donald Trump. Now, he won 16 of Argentina's 24 regions in the nation's primaries. Now, that came as a bit of a surprise, we think. But clearly, he's talking to the people somehow, and they are voting for him. Yeah, and we make fun of him, but there is a serious point here, because he is very far to the right, extremely far to the right. Um, 
with that in mind, how much of a shock, I guess, is is his success? Because there are nearby countries that have historically also been very far right. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro from Brazil, who, who's just left his office, springs to mind, for example. Well, I mean, analysts are saying that they didn't really expect this. So in some ways, it is a shock. But as you say, there are nations nearby that have this right wing trend within them. But then what he's saying is basically speaking to the people. He's saying that he offers a real opposition alternative. He's talking about the issues that are facing the public, inflation, how angry they are with the political system, with a lack of change. And so he's really focused in on that. And there's some really bold statements that he's made. Uh, He wants to change Argentina's central bank, shutting it down essentially, and replacing the peso with the dollar. Now, interestingly, the peso has plummeted uh, since these election wins or these primary wins, uh, sorry. And it seems like the central bank has allowed that slide to happen, some sort of revolt there maybe. He's also said some really weird things like the sale of human organs should be legal. And he's proposed the deregulation of the legal market of gun ownership. And now on climate change, which you mentioned earlier, he's called that a socialist lie. So there's some really bold statements here Clearly, people are listening to it. And just to wrap this up on South America, you know, with everything that's happening in Ecuador, um, with Malai taking a, a political lead in Argentina, why should the rest of us care about all of this? Especially with Argentina, does it just show how far the likes of Trump, for example, how far his political ideals can reach? He is an influential man, whether you like him or not. If people are listening to him, emulating him here, as we've seen in Argentina, taking those really bold statements, pushing them towards the people and delivering them in a way that is highly believable, even if what they're saying, like climate change being a socialist lie, being absolute codswallop. Um, The way that you deliver a message is really important in politics, and he seems to have that conviction. So if he can gather enough momentum behind him to continue into October's elections, then it could be that there is this shift to the right. But equally, people will be watching what is happening to Donald Trump. There is a real push from some uh, prosecutors in Georgia to try to televise uh, and broadcast these court proceedings if and when they happen, to try to really show people plainly what this man is accused of, how he's being treated in court and how he's defending himself, because they believe that if people see it for themselves, then there is no way to try to bring up this smoke and mirrors kind of vibe and persuade people that what uh, Donald Trump is doing is right. So there has been this filtration across America, down into South America, it seems. But does everything just have a time uh, line on it? Does it have an expiry date? We'll have to just wait and see. And that seems like a good place uh, to leave it. This is the end of this edition of the Bunker Global. Laura, thanks for joining me and sharing your wisdom with us all. You're more than welcome. Listeners, did you enjoy this episode? Well, if you did, I've got some news. We release episodes just like this every Friday. And not only are there well over a thousand others that we've already recorded, there's also a new episode of the Bunker every day. Remember, you can get them before anyone else, as well as exciting new merchandise for backers. That's coming soon, but only when you back us on Patreon. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from The Bunker. The Bunker Global was written and presented by Chris Jones and Laura Makin-Isherwood. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. 
The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production. <laughs>